Hello and welcome. It's the TetraCast Memorial Day Weekend Edition. I'm your host, Brian Vitali. Joining me today are Adam Vitali. Hey, guys. And James Galizio. Hey. So uh, for most of us, it's a three-day weekend, but what is a weekend anymore in the middle of what we're in the middle of? But it's Saturday. We're going to do this weekly. It's another episode of our podcast. Uh, we're a week away from going into Xenoblade Chronicles for the Switch, the Definitive Edition. Lots of people looking forward to that. And we have more announcements in terms of summer gaming events that are on the horizon to look forward to. Uh, this one should be a bit brief uh, because it is just a bit of a, a down week, but we'll see. At first, as always, we're going to talk about what we've been playing this week. Uh, I guess, James... We'll tie this into a review that you did put up on the website. Uh, you've been playing a couple games this week uh, on the visual novel front, I believe. That's what these are. Go ahead and talk about what yeah. you Yeah. Well, technically... Wait a this isn't Final Fantasy XIV. Yeah, surprise. <laughs> I actually didn't play Final Fantasy this week because I'm caught up. <laughs> so I don't feel the need to like just bum rush through content. It's actually kind of nice. I can just play it when... I want to play it. I don't feel like, oh, I'm gonna get to this next like MSQ or whatnot. Um, no but anyway, suffering under FIFO or FOMO. Uh, FIFO. Yeah. Um. So last week I played through uh, Do Mono: Prelude to the Fallen, which was which is the upcoming uh, remake of the original game uh, that those of us in the West have been kind of waiting for. Because um, Atlas um, localized the uh, Mask of Deception and Mask of Truth, which were Utsuharu Jumono 2 and 3, respectively. But it's a trilogy. And for the longest time, people that wanted to get into the series, well, you could play Mask of Deception without really knowing anything about the first game and what happened in it. But for Mask of Truth, it really kind of depended on that knowledge. And so anyone that was interested in playing the series was kind of stuck in a bit of a precarious situation where there was no real good option because the anime adaptation for the first game was well decent enough. So you could always watch that and then play the games. But if you actually wanted to play the game, the only real option people had was a 2002 fan translation for the original uh, PC game, which was an gay. So, so a porn game, and it had a bunch of the idiosyncrasies that you would expect from a uh, fan translation for one of those types of games back in the uh, early aughts. So needless to say, it wasn't very good. Um, I was going to ask, I said, is Prelude to the Fallen, it's coming out for PC and Switch, or is, is it more than that? Uh, PS4 and Vita, believe it or not. As far as oh, I can tell, yeah. it's the... Um, it's the uh, last real, quote-unquote, big release for the Vita, which is um, kind of sad in its own right, but it's also cool to see that tech... Well, kind of cool to see that the Vita ha is uh, receiving, like, one last game when I, I don't even remember the last 3DS game that came out, especially, like, in our sphere, like, RPGs. It, it would have been, like, been um, Persona, Persona Q2, Q2, I think. Yeah, and that was last year. Last so. year. So I guess Vita doesn't mean like... But even that was like, like 
even that was like a year past like what was the one before that i don't know maybe like etrian odyssey nexus like, they're, yeah. like the, the 3ds has kind of been like on a slow trickle for the last two and a half years and we're and the faucet's off now yeah but um so i actually had originally intended to review it on vita precisely because it's kind of got that allure of oh it's a vita game in 2020 but um I'm pretty sure what happened is that Sony never actually got uh, Vita Code to NIS America, which uh, that's another thing I should mention is that uh, if you aren't a big fan of the series or if you haven't really been paying attention, while Atlas did the translations for Mask of Deception, Mask of Truth, uh, NIS America was the ones that took up the reins for Prelude to the Fallen or this remake um, um, alongside the uh, release for Utuardu Mono Zon, which came out... Uh, earlier this year or was it or was it last year i think it was earlier this year last year last year god time flies in well yeah what is um, very weird right now <laughs> this is a little bit of a fallback but all, i think dmm games did actually say that they plan on bringing this newly released remake to pc yes. eventually but they just haven't offered any other details besides that they were probably waiting on NAS America to get their release out first because their PC versions are based off of existing translations. Though they have said that they are before they release their uh, versions on PC, they are giving them like an extra ending pass just in case, which is nice to see. I mean, I don't think necessarily uh, Mask of Deception, Mask of Truth needed it or really would have benefited from it. But um, as I kind of discussed on Twitter, I didn't really mention it in my review, but... Um, for the most part, NIS America did a surprisingly really good job with uh, Utaru Mono, considering the uh, um, the tough shoes that they had to fill. Because, um, again, if you're, if you're not a big fan of visual novels or if you don't really pay attention to the spear, uh, I'd say that it's a consensus that uh, Mask of Deception and Mask of Truth translations are some of the best in the business because they're really good translations. So couple that with the fact that even now people are generally a little bit more hesitant about NIS America translations, even though they've been improving, no doubt. Like Cold Steel 3 had a had a pretty good translation. Labyrinth of Refrain had a really good translation. Uh, I know that at least the few people, myself included, though, were uh, kind of considering this the real litmus test to see if uh, the Ease 8 situation really did cause a change in how they tackle translations over at NIS America because that was obviously a very big uh, issue back in 2017. And uh, well, hopefully... it's it's a lot more difficult to rebuild goodwill than it is to kind of leave that bad first impression because it seems like they've been on a pretty good roll of doing solid work since the original um debacle is that too dramatic but uh people are still gonna say like oh nice america they're the ones that screwed that up but you know i think people are now thinking like okay that was years ago you know it's been on it's been on an upward tick since then so maybe it was yeah. a culture change since then at that point yeah i believe it i believe it um all i have to say about the translation is that it is good there is like two or three lines that are stand out because they don't really fit with the rest of the tone of the game, or I should say the rest of the tone of the translation specifically. And uh, a few people have pointed those out on Twitter. And uh, 
while I do think it's important that those are pointed out and hopefully NIS America does something to fix them, the problem is, is that when you, it's easy to point to like two or three like issues on Twitter and it's like, that's just about enough to fill out a tweet. Problem is, is that if you point out two or three issues on Twitter, then people take that to mean that it's a representative of the entire translation as a whole. Whereas in Uchwaru Mono's case, like those two or three instances that people are highlighting and talking about, those are like the only problem lines in the entire 30 plus hour visual novel slash tactical yeah, RPG. It's, it's easy to take a Twitter, which is like a very small, like you're, it's like looking through a piece of paper that has a tiny slit in it, looking through that and then saying like, this is the entire thing past that that I'm looking at, where it's like, no, where, where are all the tweets that have all the lines that are perfectly fine? How can people yeah. understand those? Again, and it's very clear that a lot of effort was put into this translation and that it wasn't like, again, I mentioned on podcasts prior that it felt like they were kind of hiding what the actual translation was going to be leading up to launch. And now that I've played through the story and I've actually seen the translation as a whole, except for those few problem lines, which again, there's only two or three. The translation itself is actually good, not just good for NAS America standards as as kind of crappy that is to say, but like good in general. Maybe not as good as the uh, other Utsuaru Dumono translations, but again, that's asking a lot when those are probably like cream of the crop best translations in gaming. So, so um, if I was someone that was like me who has not played any of these, but I was more adventurous than me and was going to start. Is Prelude to the Fallen where I would start? Absolutely. Um, it's actually a bit of an interesting situation because while it is a remake of the original game, in some ways, if you didn't have the 3D battles and like the maps were like remade, it's... Okay, so the way that map and enemy layouts are designed, at le- and I haven't played this game on 3DS, but from what I understand, it, there was a similar issue with... Uh, um, Fire Emblem Echoes Shadows of Valencia on the 3DS, where like everything else about the game was really upgraded, but the actual like level and enemy layouts for like maps were restrictive and they were very much based off of the original designs for those maps, and not much was really done to modernize them. And uh, can, the I, same... I just played that. Can you uh, corroborate? Is that true? I know that that game had some limitations being based on an older title, but was it the map design specifically? Uh, I'm not sure about map design. I just know like the characters and classes and like mechanics of the game are definitely more simple than other games that have come out in the Fire Emblem series. Yeah. Well, the point being is that that's the impression I've gotten about Shadows of Valencia, but well, I mean, eh, Echoes of Valencia. Sorry, yeah, Shadows of Valencia. Um, but um, it's a similar deal here because the enemy layout the map designs and the enemy layouts for prelude to the fallen are basically identical to the original game on the pc with uh, the exception of one arc which was actually added in the ps2 psp version that came out later in japan but even then those layouts are the same for those so it doesn't really matter um one thing that i really enjoyed about the sequels and made it actually kind of tough to come back and play this remake is that the battle system in Prelude to the Fallen is very, 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 uh, I guess the best way to describe it is accurate to the original battle system. Like, there's some small changes that brings it more in line with the sequels. Um, 
actually, I should just explain what the sequels do differently and what I enjoyed about them to kind of explain why it was difficult to go backwards. So one of the unique things about Utoharu uh, Mono as a tactical RPG is that the battles kind of have a uh, Paper Mario-esque like, timing to them, where when you attack an enemy, you get something called an attack chain. And you have to you want to time your button presses as a larger circle shrinks down into a smaller circle in order to, in the sequels, deal extra damage, get extra zeal for your attacks, and to continue a chain going. In the sequel, it was really interesting because there was also hidden critical points during those transition during those attack animations where you could uh, tap at a cer- certain time to get extra damage and extra zeal, even without the outer circle kind of showing that the hidden point was there though there was like some sort of indication that something might be there because the small circle that the larger circle would fall into would be shown during those hidden critical points um there was tons of uh thought that you had to put into like how long you wanted the chain to go because some aspects of chains had different attributes like they maybe would take some zeal from your zeal bar if you wanted to continue a chain onto the next attack Maybe they would have an area of effect attack, and every char- almost every character actually had multiple attack chains they could choose from at by the end of the, by the end of like Mask of Truth. So it felt really nice playing the game because each and every unit had their own specific gameplay style, and it was represented in the mechanics. Going backwards to Prelude to the Fall, and a lot of what made the sequels, in my eyes, like fantastic tactical RPGs instead of just a great visual novel with a decent tactical RPG, like kind of glue to hold it all together. A staple to it. Yeah, it feels simplified. And people won't have that issue with the combat. Because, like, for one example, I mentioned how there was like hidden criticals, different attack chains, all that sort of stuff. And even the zeal system was different in the sequels. And Prelude to the Fallen, it's overly simplified. Well, not even overly simplified, because this is what originally was in the original game, is that every character only has one attack chain. You don't gain extra damage from timing your button presses. You just gain extra zeal. And really, the only thing that extra zeal does is that it gives you an extra attack to your attack chain if you spend it all. Or what's new in this um, version of the game is that you have Final Strikes, which were from the sequels, and they're basically just giant attacks flashy they have like a little animation whatnot and then you have co-op chains which is really the major addition to the battle system because they you um two units can work together if they both have enough zeal to use an attack that has different attributes and the battle system isn't bad i do think it's a pretty decent tactical rpg but coming from my standpoint of this wasn't my first game in the series and i actually saw how much more engaging the combat becomes in the sequels. Ironically enough, even though this remake came out after the sequels, it definitely feels like they designed it with the idea of if people are going to get into the series, play this remake first. Yeah, I guess that is kind of interesting where it's like, it doesn't have, it's not, it's not remat, it's not built on the simplified older title because it is remade and it's the newest one they have made, but it still kind of has that feel to it. Where it feels like you're supposed to play this first and then ramp up into the next two based on what you're describing yeah yeah um so yeah so what, people what is have... the um like what is the relative weight of visual novel versus uh well, i don't know i don't know what you're going to call the other half the uh the um 
battle, you know, encounter gameplay? Is it half and half? Is it two thirds, one third? Um, generally, I'd say it depends on the game and the series. But with uh, Prelude to the Fallen, the entire game is about thirty plus hours long, and I'd say that at least two thirds of that is visual, uh, visual novel gameplay. Or I guess so visual about, novel. That seems. So. As someone who hasn't played these sorts of games, so I'm kind of speaking as a neophyte, is that the right word? Uh, that that seems like that's what people say Like uh, when we're talking to Josh Torres about Soccer Wars. It's got a similar distribution there. So it seems like that's kind of like the sweet spot where these games often end up. Yeah. Um, it's definitely better paced with the tactical RPG gameplay versus some of... Well, it's interesting because... And I even mentioned this in my review that... In retrospect, Mask of Deception and Mask of Truth, they it's hard for me to kind of separate them as two distinct games because Mask of Deception is only like 20 hours long and it doesn't have nearly as many battles as either Prelude to the Fallen or Mask of Truth. So most of it's just slice of life visual novel sections. Then there's like a cliffhanger ending, which is a really good ending. But then Mask of Truth took me like 62 hours to finish it's longer from a visual novel standpoint, but it also has like entirely way more battles. And like when I reviewed Utoaru Monozan, I even mentioned that it was kind of weird that they only included the Mask of Deception content because there was hints to what might have originally have been a larger scope. Because I know I know I'm not the only person that says this, but it really is almost impossible to separate Mask of Deception and Mask of Truth's. Uh, storylines and kind of separate them as two distinct games it's kind of like a similar situation to trills in the sky with first chapter and second chapter like yeah they're distinct games but the narrative is very much one narrative if that makes any sense well i'll just say speaking from an outsider's perspective when you guys talk about uh udo aramono the, the fact that those, you know, just boil it down, this, the, those titles are so similar. So when you're describing Mask of Deception or Mask of Truth, it's hard for me just to sip, separate them out in my head. Uh, I just yeah, think I of think them that as kind of like this, this coupled pair of games that you're designed to be yeah. experienced together. It's funny because, like, the actual names in Japanese were entirely different. Like, Mask of Deception was something like The False Faces, and Mask of Truth was the, uh, well, actually the title for mask of truth was itself a bit of a spoiler so that might have been the main reason they changed it when they brought it over west but i'm sure that part of the reason why they went with mask of deception and mask of truth is because it's pretty clear that you that there's that the two titles are closely linked and even more so than most sequels are and so it made more sense to kind of put that emphasis on their kind of two sides of the same coin my, my my stupid lizard brain is like going to Oracle of Ages, Oracle of Seasons, or uh, Binding Blade, Blazing Blade for Fire Emblem. It's just interesting to see that kind of that sort of philosophy crop up in a few places. Yeah. Any Anyways, I enjoyed it. On, uh... Oh, okay. You're about to go in there. I was going to ask like just final yeah, thoughts. Sorry. On, uh, Prelude to the Fallen. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, I did give it a 7 out of 10, which means that it isn't the best like tactical RPG or VN I've played. But um, I would recommend it regardless, because on its own merits, it's still a good game. And 
I think that the sequels more than make up for like any of the shortcomings that uh, Prelude to the Fallen might have with its battle system. Because again, I know I've said this before, but I really wish like back in uh, 2017's Game of the Year cast, I had actually played the, like um, the uh, two sequels before like uh, we had done all of the deliberations. Because I just keep remembering Zach like going to bat for them, and I was like, oh, I played a bit of Mask of Deception. I know it's probably really good, but Man, I just—it's a great series. You would have—you would have fought harder for it if you had. Yeah, I would have. And just to blurt it out, a uh, a seven on the RPG site scale is a high quality, or sorry, slight flaws and issues are evident, but this is still an above average and quality game with that has that is worth a look, basically. Yeah. And so we do have a review on the website. Thanks to James for Prelude to the Fallen. All right, so what I've been playing this last week has actually been uh, Yakuza Kiwami 2. For no real reason other than, like, I had a kind of a gap week between uh, finishing off a bunch of my RPG plays. Like, I was playing through Final Fantasy X and uh, Remake and Bug Fables. And now, like, I want to play Xeno next week, so I had kind of this gap week. And so basically, time to hit one out of the backlog. That's Kiwami 2. Um, so I had played, my history with the series is basically that I just played Zero and Kiwami when they released on PC, like two years ago and then a year ago or a year and a half ago. Uh, th they were paced out like about one release every five months or so, but I played the first two and then I was just kind of um, burnt out a little bit and didn't get to Kiwami 2 right away. And then I just finally you know, got to it this uh, this week. I'm pretty much right at the finish line. I'm at like chapter 14 of 16 and I've done a lot of the side content. So I've put like 40 hours into the game or 30 hours into the game, something like that. Uh, so I thought just, just to kind of set the groundwork, I thought that Yakuza zero was really kind of incredible. It's like, I really enjoyed it a lot. And then I thought Kiwami one was really kind of lackluster. And those, um, those opinions aren't really that unique. I think that's kind of, pretty much in line with the consensus and it does kind of go back to what you were talking about with the remakes or uh basically it you know kwami is a, a reimagining remake remaster whichever one is the most appropriate of the original game so it's kind of pared back a bit in terms of its storytelling and obviously it's got the better engine you know a lot of the you know modern sensibilities but it's still tied to that you know early you know ps2 story you know it's kind of there's not a lot of intrigue. It's pretty straightforward. It's there's just not there's not there's not as much going for it as there was for Zero, and Kwame Two felt like it's kind of splitting the difference. I was actually wondering the way Kwame ends. I won't spoil it, but it basically doesn't leave, or doesn't outwardly leave a lot of space for the story to continue much. Uh, but then Kwame Two does a really good job, kind of like widening the scope of the story. It introduces basically. The, uh, the Omi Alliance, basically a uh, kind of a, a brother clan to the Tojo clan, where it basically uses that to say, now we can introduce a whole bunch more characters. We can integrate them into, into the story in a very um, in a very kind of natural way. So it doesn't feel like it's just shoehorned in to make the story go on. It feels really natural. My only real criticism is that, so the Yakuza games are always kind of, one of the, my favorite things about them is how they kind of balance the, you know, this almost, you know, thriller crime drama uh, 
with the kind of kitschy, silly side stories, which everyone loves to share on Twitter about, you know, people who dress up like babies or uh, people who like are trying to like have Kiryu voice act for a video game, which ends up being an eroge or, you know, that pretty much all the side stories have some sort of like kooky twist to them or not all of them, but many of them do. But then the main story of Kiwami 2 at like three different places ends up kind of doing that on its own where it's like you're in the middle of a dramatic event and it's like now we got to introduce the Cabaret Club Grand Prix, you know, minigame side side mission. So you have to listen through like 45 minutes of cutscenes about introducing that whole concept, which is fine, I guess, in a vacuum. But it's just when you're in the middle of big story events, it's just I don't know. I just wanted it to be over with. I feel like I'm kind of just speaking on my own here. Has anyone else here played any of the Yakuza games? I've played Zero, um, and I enjoyed it, but I haven't really gone on to play any of the rest because I've heard very specifically that going from Zero to Kiwami in a short succession is kind of disappointing because in many ways Kiwami feels like a reskinned Yakuza Zero. Uh, so I do want to get it, back to it, but I want to give myself enough kind like enough of a gap between playing Zero and Kiwami so it doesn't feel too familiar. Yeah, and I definitely can corroborate that because I burnt out after playing those two as they came out on PC, and then it took me a year to get back to Kiwami 2. Uh, so he's not here on the cast today, but Josh Torres has been playing through all these games in succession, like trying to get ready for um, Like a Dragon, which will release at some point later this year. And I don't know how he does it because he's just like a machine. He's like, he started on zero and he's like, I should finish three this week. And then he's on to four because he just bought the um, collection because I guess Best Buy or someone had like a, a pricing error on it. Yeah, for 20 the bucks. HD collection. Like yeah, for the for HD collection of three, four, five. And I considered it, but I was thinking like, you know, by the time I'm done with Kiwami 2, I'm probably going to not go straight into the next ones anyway. So I'm not really in a rush. It's but funny I want to say this... like, go ahead. Sorry. It's funny how you can say, oh, I don't know how he does it. Oh, I should be in Yakuza 3 next week. And it's like, that's basically what I did with the Final Fantasy XIV expansions. Yeah, I, I guess I just don't have that, uh, that perseverance. I, I beat a game, I see the credits, and then I just want something different. Well, I say that, but I did also play like three Final Fantasy games within two months. Uh, but Final so Fantasy XIV on PS4, Brian, join us. At least add it no. to your account. Maybe. So Kiwami 2, I think, definitely doesn't feel... It feels much more of a of a natural progression of Kiwami 0 in terms of gameplay. Obviously, the story... Um, so far, the story of Zero, 1, and 2 is pretty... Um, like, you have to play 1. Like, I, would, I wouldn't suggest playing those in any other order. I think some people say you can start with Kiwami 1, but... Zero, I think, is really in a uh, really interesting place where it was made after the fact. So it is a prequel in every sense of the definition. But I feel like it's the sort of, in almost every other case, I would say play in release order. Play in release, like if, even if it's a prequel, it's designed to play after you know what it leads to. But Kwame Zero is the one game that gives me pause to suggest that. Not Kwame Zero, Yakuza Zero. Where I'm like, I really think that all the character introductions are done better in Zero than they are done in Kiwami. And then Kiwami 2 introduces, like I said, a whole bunch of new characters, specifically those from the Omi Alliance and the Kansai region. And outside of the story kind of going on, you know, 
tangents. Like another one, I already talked about the Cabaret Club, but another one is the uh, clan creator where you meet Majima again, who is obviously one of the one of the series like main main protagonists. And he's leading a construction company trying to rebuild part of the city. It's it's played off as a bit silly, but a bit serious, kind of like the rest of the, you know, the series. But you spend like almost an hour of cutscene where he's like run running into conflict with these like real estate moguls about who want the land and like and it's like I guess the clan creator for for uh recruiting people for Majima's company to build this thing has its own like story kind of attached to it, which is impressive in itself. But I'm sitting here in the middle of the game just wanting to get on with the actual, you know, front to end story of Kwame 2 saying like, I don't care about this, at least not right now. I, I feel like it would have made more sense to put this really under the uh, the sub stories, you know, umbrella rather than they kind of force the narrative to drive to barrel through it, which kind of it, it it's it's effective at making it you know front and center for the moment that it is front and center but it's it's still just i think it hurts the pacing of the of the story being told outside of that i i will say that one thing that i think kwami 2 does really well though is that it uh it partners you with another like main character named kaoru sayama who is a um like a police detective and there's several points in the game where she's alongside with Kiryu, like in the city, and you can take her to both parts of the of the game, either uh, Kamurocho or Sotenbori. And like you, ha- you have kind of like this buddy cop uh, thing going on where sh- you can do like the heat action finishers. And it really reminded me of Sleeping Dogs, which had a lot of the similar sort of stuff. And I'm like, man, I want a Sleeping Dogs game. I want I want like a buddy cop game where you're where. I don't care how they explain it, but I, I want a cop game where it's a brawler. But that's I basically want another Sleeping Dogs. That's I mean, isn't Kwame too? Isn't that yeah. literally Judgment's like kind of a setup where you're playing as a duo of like, well, I guess a detective, but also like your buddy is like the brawn of the operation. And He's the muscle. Like spends a lot. Yeah. So I mean, it sounds like you'll enjoy Judgment once it finally comes to PC. Whenever that happens, one day. I, I guess I like I knew about Judgment, but I guess I wasn't thinking about it. For some reason, when I was playing through these sections with Sayama uh, doing this buddy cop thing, the first thing that came to my mind was Sleeping Dogs and not Judgment, but I guess it's probably just because I've played it. Um, it's kind of ironic think, because didn't Kiwami 2 come out right before Judgment? Yeah, they were like definitely within a year of each other. Um, so maybe maybe that'll be the next one on the list to get the same sort of experience without burning out. And it won't be as much of a like... That's one thing that's that I am hesitant on. I'm going going on onto like Yakuza three is because obviously it's gonna be a dip in quality, uh, and I just mean not in like overall quality, but just in presentation because it's just a remaster of a, of a PS three game, I think, uh, or is it PS two? I don't quite remember, but it's it's, it's not PS three, but little... uh, but Yakuza zero and Kiwami were both on PS three as well. So if you're fine with those, you should be fine with three. Yeah, it's probably fine. Maybe I'm just coming up with excuses. Like, I don't want to go into uh, into Yakuza 3 right away. But uh, I am really excited about uh, Like a Dragon because I'm I'm the sort of person, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, where I actually really enjoy turn-based battle systems. I just love the abstractness of it and all the ways you can kind of like tweak it and turn it to do different things. Where honestly, I look at the brawling system of the uh, of Zero, Kwame, and Kwame Two, and it's it's fine, it's it's good enough, but I really wouldn't call it the highlights of the games. Like I, I wouldn't say if you love street brawl action that you should play 
Yakuza is Kiwami too. It's more for the story and the um, kind of like the uh, the world building and like the detail and the because like, none of these uh, regions like Kumarocho or Sombori are super huge, but there's like you can go into you can go into like supermarkets and use the ATM or like go into the side alley and up a stairs to find the acupuncturist. Like they're super well detailed and dense, and that's one thing that is more I think more. Uh, I'm more excited to play that as more of an exploration standpoint, more than like when, when I see the Yakuza thugs on the street trying to chase after me, unless I'm really going to like trying to gain EXP. I, oftentimes I try to avoid them because the brawling is fine, but it's not like carrying the game. So that's, I guess that's, uh, if I were to like grade it, that's the one thing that I would put on the footer where I'd say like, these are the things that I'm not in love with, but I think are fine enough. But yeah, I'm enjoying Kiwami too. I'll probably finish it like this long weekend. Um, I don't anticipate my uh, my impressions changing that much unless the ending really goes off the rails, which is in the Yakuza game very possible. So I guess we'll see. But uh, I would still say start with Yakuza 0. Obviously, it's the sort of series where I don't think you can really jump in at any point. And unfortunately for uh, Like a Dragon... They're, like Sega, for, at least on the Western side, is trying to seemingly market it as a jumping in point by deliberately chopping the number. It's no longer called Yakuza 7. It's just like a dragon. But if you talk to people who have played the whole series and uh, those that it imported like a dragon, they uh, one of the one of the site's uh, contributors, Kazuma Hashimoto, basically says you shouldn't play this unless you play the rest. And I don't know if I'm going to play zero through six before I get there, but I might as well at least make some more of a dent rather than just go straight from Kiwami to like a dragon. So I guess we'll see once that comes out later this year, what people's uh, takeaway is based on how much of the series they've played up to that point. Yep. Uh, Adam, for this, for this week, uh, have you played anything or has it mostly just been a uh, Xenoblade preview stuff? Yeah, I've just still been playing Xenoblade and, you know, I've already talked about it last week, and it's still under the preview embargo, so I can't talk about much more than I already did. And, you know, I so, guess I can say, because this game is already out, like, it's a re-release of a game. I'm, I'm, I'm doing, like, endgame stuff at the moment. Um, Xenoblade has a lot of side quests, and once you kind of get to the last part of the storyline in the game, uh, some of the, like, post-game sort of content opens up where you have super high level bosses and quest monsters and just random unique monsters that you can take down and things like that that are much more difficult than like the final bosses actually and that's not really uncommon like for any good jrpg yeah so i'm kind of at that point where i'm i i'm i'm at the point where i could go to the final cutscene and fight the final boss but i'm doing all the other stuff first which can take a while depending on how much you want to complete other it. other stuff you want to do right yeah, but I guess yeah. I'll just use that as a as a launch point to say that obviously we have a couple people on staff working for uh, Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition review and guides and content. So look forward to that when it releases a week from yesterday, right? So six days away. God, I have six days to finish Cross before Definitive Edition comes out. Oh man, <laughs> oh, were you were you planning on uh, jumping into the Definitive yeah. Edition? Yeah. Yeah, I was planning on finishing up my uh, cross playthrough before uh, Definitive Edition came out. And it's not really that much of a rush because I did play the game on both Wii and New 3DS. And 
I guess like half of my Wii playthrough is actually done through Dolphin because I transferred my save over. But uh, so it's not like I need to play it like immediately at launch, but it would be nice but to the try and... Yeah, got, like you said, uh, FOMO. <laughs> but yep, look forward to that coming uh, next week. Uh, and then a few other uh, shout-outs for some reviews and larger uh, features in the site. Um, George Foster actually put up a pretty nice little like retrospective piece on The Witcher 3 because it hit its five-year anniversary uh, last week. And it's really just kind of marveling at how far it's come. Like, 2007, this little Polish studio releases this computer RPG that was, it was fine. It sold like a million or maybe a million and a half. And then Witcher 2 kind of put it on the same playing field as something like, I don't know, Mass Effect, where it was like the Witcher 1 and 2 had sold 8 million, mostly on PC, but obviously had the, the 360 port late. And then the Witcher 3 came along three years ago and just kind of like blew the ceiling off. It's something like, tw- let me pull this up. It's like 20 million or something like that now. It's more than 20 million, I I think. 30 million, 30 million copies of the whole uh, of the whole trilogy, because and obviously it's on all consoles now. It's been a uh, super. Yeah, some people might say like, well, it's, a lot of those games have been a few bucks on PC sales. But still, like then we also talk about the Netflix adaptation, how the book that was released 27 years ago hit the uh, New York Times bestseller uh, list. Apparently, uh, the Switch version of Witcher 3 actually has sold close to a million copies, which doesn't sound like a bunch but considering it's a late port like a really late port of the game and like it hasn't really been on sale the fact that sold over like well almost i'm not sure if it's past 1 million yet but it's like almost hit 1 million sales that's really good for what like the type of like port it is and how much it must have cost to like do that conversion and i know that the um like the netflix adaptation follows the books and then the video game adaptation follows the books and then those two things are not really directly tethered to each other but they're still kind of like indirectly tethered to each other because as the which as the netflix adaptation was ramping up into late last year like the witcher 3 video game had its best selling year since 2015 so like obviously people still correlate those things together which obviously just leads into like uh, the fact that Cyberpunk is coming out later this year, and now this is CD Projekt Red, basically almost, I, I don't want to be like too superlative, but they're basically on top of the Western RPG world with people like Bioware and Bethesda kind of fumbling. And then other studios like Larian just kind of just not existing in that space deliberately. They're, they're making specifically isometric PC games. Uh, so they've kind of become the premier developer and it's lot, and largely thanks to Witcher 3. So so George put up just kind of a nice retrospective, just kind of marveling at that. And I know not everyone loves The Witcher 3, but I think anyone can like respect and appreciate what it did. And then lastly, just uh, went up today, uh, we uh, have a kind of a, a smaller review for Maneater, which is kind of like this, I don't want to use this, but it's a Dark Souls type game only it's open world and involves a shark. So you might call it shark souls I've seen. It's a bit silly, but I guess that kind of goes with the tone of the game. It seems silly. It seems fun. It's very much in that Sharknado vein of who cares if the premise is kind of goofy. Let's make a game around it. So uh, 
Elizabeth Henges put up a review for that. It's it's again another one of those sevens. It's it's got some flaws, but it's it's still enjoyable time. So go ahead and look at that. It's it's been kind of a fun game to kind of cover when we have all these like uh, news stories or blips or trailers for uh, stuff like Cyberpunk or stuff like Cold Steel games or the Square Enix titles. Then also Maneater, this shark game that comes out this summer. Why not? If you got nothing else to play, if you're not interested in Xenoblade, take a look at it. All right, into the news topics for the week. Like I kind of said, it's been of a quieter week, but there are a few cool, uh, interesting things to talk about. We have another uh, summer gaming event to, to put on our somehow surprisingly crowded calendars, despite not having an E3 event or a Gamescom event. We have New Game Plus Expo, which is a Twitch streaming event comprised of mostly Jap or entirely Japanese developers and publishers, which kind uh, of puts it... Uh, North oh, yeah, American. But yeah, we've got uh, Idea Factory, Sega, Atlas, Arc System Works, Koi Tecmo, Nice America, a whole bunch of others. Um, and this is a, a streaming event uh, in late June, pretty much a month from today, June 23rd. So uh, is this, I guess this is the first of the, uh, we've, we've, we've heard of other like the Gamescoms, the IGN one, the uh, Summer of Gaming headed up by um, Jeff Keighley. But this is the first one, I think, that it primarily has that uh, Japanese slant, which is, uh, I think, obviously for fans of JRPGs or Japanese action games or the other uh, genres that these companies are dabble in, something to look forward to where uh, we've already kind of seen the summer of gaming has kind of been the same sort of footprint that the Game Awards has, which is Western oriented in most point in most places. I do know that they gave Game of the Year last year to Sekiro, but normally I would expect most of the stuff under that summer gaming label to be your your Ubisofts and your Activisions and your EAs. But we'll see. I guess EA is also having their own digital event too, so that's another another thing to throw in there. Yeah. Since uh, Atlas Sega, that, uh... go ahead. Since Atlas Sega are going to be part of this. Uh... NGP, I think it is, or NGPX. Yeah, NGPX, New Game Plus Expo. Um, I think it's relatively safe to assume that the Persona 5 uh, Scramble, I think that's what it's called and going to be, like what the leak is saying it's going to be called in the West. Uh, I'm yeah. pretty sure that's like a safe lock that's going to be announced there because it's, it's only a matter of time. Uh, what I'm hoping for is we finally get some more information about when people in the West can uh, play 13 Sentinels because uh, I Sega Atlas, I, I can only hold out so much when so many of my mutuals on Twitter are tweeting about how much you're enjoying the Japanese release and I can read Japanese so I could import it if I want to. It's like, I can only hold out for so long. That's the uh, Vanillaware title. Yeah. The Vanillaware title. So hopefully yeah. we get some information on that it's gonna be interesting though because like uh definitely seems like that nis america is going to play a relatively uh significant role in this because the producer for the uh for the thing is an nis america employee so they're directly uh involved with the production of this which is interesting uh i don't know what they'd announce like i actually don't explicitly know what they might be able to like like, I, I don't know what ISJ is working on, because it seems like they've been having a ton of issues, because, like, the whole thing with Labyrinth of Galleria, we still don't know if it's still even 
coming because originally it was supposed right, to be that, like that, that, that wouldn't be something that would resurface at an NIS America showing. Right. Yeah. So uh, going to be interesting to see what they license. One thing that's interesting is that, uh, and it's more of a conspicuous absence is that marvelous isn't part of this. Like every other localization house from like around like Southern California is part of it, but uh, marvelous isn't. So kind of curious. Also kind of awkward since Natsume is, and there is that whole situation, like that relationship between Natsume and Marvelous that I'm sure is very awkward. So. Yeah, Harvest Moon. Natsume announced a Harvest Moon game, and they'll probably show it off here. But just to reiterate, these aren't like the real Harvest Moons anymore. So... Yeah, and when they announced it, they haven't, they didn't show it off yet. But the previous Harvest Moon games, like the ones with the name, even if they're not the real ones, kind of looked really cheap and kind of bad. So, yeah, yeah, that is weird. Well, let's, I, let's I be optimistic. Theory... Maybe they can make. Maybe they can. Like, I don't think we should just treat Harvest Moon as going to be this garbage series going forward because it's no longer the original. But I guess they have yet to prove that that's the case. I'm playing devil's advocate here. I mean, it's yeah, a fair I mean, maybe, argument to make because be good, but... it's funny because, like, I, I think I've said this before, but it's really fascinating how, like, Stardew Valley just came out and completely eclipsed the uh, fan base and the, uh, the um, like, spread in the gaming community that Harvest Moon had ever had or Story of Seasons had ever had. Because, like, Stardew Valley has sold over 10 million copies last I checked, and I don't think many harvest moons sell more than one million <laughs> so there's certainly room i wonder, I wonder if having a, a bigger pc footprint plays there oh I, i'm sure that's part of it and like stardew valley is available on almost anything like heck there's a vita port of that game too so like there's vita there's switch xbox ps4 i mean if you have a console you can play Stardew Valley. And if you don't have a console, <laughs> I, I can I can only assume that pretty much any PC from the last 10 years would have no trouble running that game. It definitely seems like the sort of game that like the PC simulation fan like fandom would actually would really get into. And we saw like this is a bit of a tangent, but I see the same sort of thing when like Terraria finally got its final update and like shot up the Steam ranks uh, to like to be like the number fourth most played game behind like CS go and like dota so whenever the reason why i'm bringing that up is like whenever these sort of like semi strategy building type games which i would say farming sims fall under there's always going to be like a voracious pc environment that i think would definitely eat those up but yep that's new game plus expo june 23rd so in a month with a whole bunch of publishers that we like to keep our eyes on so We'll see what they have to show for us. Put it on your calendars. We're crying just because we got so we our calendars are somehow surprisingly stacked already. Yep. Speaking of Sega, uh, we have finally gotten news about Fantasy Star Online 2 launching for PC. Uh, but not a whole bunch of news. Like, unless something has changed within the last 24 hours, they just tweeted about this, basically saying that Fantasy Star Online 2, which is going to launch on the Microsoft Store exclusively on May 27th, so the middle of next week, 
stay tuned to their, their official website, pso2.com, for more details. As far as I know, those details haven't come yet. There's been nothing other than the tweet announcing this. Yeah. So they basically said, yeah, it's coming next week. Look forward to it. But you, I if think you go I to mentioned, Microsoft Store, go ahead. I think I mentioned last week that people in the PSO2 community haven't been the most pleased with the communication that Sega of America has been doing about the Western release. And I think this is definitely another example of that because and this is really super applicable. Like it reminds me exactly of what happened with the open beta and how it's like that two weeks of open beta. And then without really even saying anything or like, Hey, the game's out now. It's like they drop a week before the, well, a little like closer to two weeks before the PC version is coming out. It's like, yeah, it's coming out in this state. Look forward to it. It's just really interesting. Like, I don't think they've even, like, said anything about when the content that's not currently in the North American version, like, the extra story content's going to drop. Because it's just, the communication's been oddly shallow. <laughs> I don't know yeah, if that's the best It's also way to weird because they, 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 they announce events that are, like, ending on the 25th. Like right before the PC version, which is just unfortunate. It's it's gonna it was gonna happen with a delayed PC release, but it, it's just I'm like I'm I'm actually clicking through the website right now, and there's really no details at all about the PC release. They've announced it, I know, with their Twitter account and maybe a press release that was sent to you know emails. But if you wanted, if you just wanted to look up, where do I get this game? How do I make sure I have it? Because it's free to play, but you want to, you need to download the client, and maybe you want the um. The, like ultimate edition add-ons or whatever they are but there's just no details on it or very light and just a little bit of like inside background info here like the 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 sega team that's in charge of like media press releases for this is not the same as like the sega team that does like the yakuza stuff or uh hatsune miku or or atlas or whatever it's it's like this it's the uh, it's the same team that does more of their European like uh, two point hospital and uh, that series of games from Sega. It, Sega kind of weirdly branches out their PR and has like different groups uh, in charge of different things. And Fantasy Star is also kind of like its own group as well. So it, it's that's part of the confusion is it's really awkward even on our side like getting information for for press uh, reasons. And the press release that announced this release date for PC, it was literally like one sentence long saying, we're excited to announce that the PC release will be available on May 27th. And that's it. But then the rest of the press release said stuff about like a Hatsune Miku uh, collaboration in the game. But it was also very vague, like if this collaboration was only for the Xbox version, even though there was some stuff going that goes into mid June. Will the PC version be able to, uh, you know, like take part in that or not? It was not. It did not specify at all. And so it's just kind of even on our end. It's like you didn't really you need more info here. It's kind of annoying. I'm looking it's forward also, to it. again trying to be the optimist, but it's just that like I don't even know when I can download the client. Yeah, and I'm like looking at the like urgent event like uh, kind of quest calendar, and it just seems like. It's very dry with the types of uh, events that they're actually like. Like I remember from the closed bay that they did actually have some quote unquote end game events like going on for like specific moments, and I don't 
think they've really been running those since the game's technically released. So it's very weird. I understand like part of it. They want people to catch up, but it feels like more communication is definitely necessary. Well, hopefully Just within weird. a day or two, we'll get some. So we'll see, because it's coming out next Wednesday on PC. Yeah. And maybe this is my bias here, but I feel like if it's an online multiplayer experience, it's already been going on for years. It's like it's been around in Japan for eight or nine years. Like, I don't want to say these games belong on PC, but I feel like they should at least have a very strong, clear, well-communicated footprint on PC because you don't have to like worry about like, cause I'm actually wondering like on the Xbox version, how it's going to translate over to the new generation or then if it eventually comes out on PlayStation, which I think we're all expecting, but hasn't been announced. Is it going to be a PS4, PS5 release, just PS5? Who knows? I'm not worried about how, how it's going to translate because, um, okay. So I, unless they've changed anything, and I don't think they have. The Xbox version is a very, very basic port from the PC version. And to the extent that you have full access to the entire graphical setting menu. So you could actually change like all these graphical settings to get a more lot like more stable frame rate, for example. And like you have like complete access to stuff like anti-aliasing, shadows, lighting, all that sort of stuff. That's so I think cool. because so because they've done that, it should actually make it, ironically, a bit easier to just transition to the Series X. Oh, you're right. Because if it has access to the full power of the box and you already have access to the settings, it's just as simple as, well, can kind of make those changes yourself. Well, but, maybe uh, by yeah. this time next week, I'll have put up a day or so into it. I might, obviously, I'm, I'm, we'll probably focus more on Xenoblade myself, but I am, I am interested in putting time into this. A few other announcements from this week. Uh, we have a delay for Fairy Tale, which is, I feel like a broken record at this point. It was originally supposed to, uh, this is the RPG from Koei Tecmo and Gus. Um, this was really supposed to release uh, in March, I believe. Yeah, March, but then it was delayed to June, and now it's been delayed to July 30th, July 31st. Uh, 30th in Europe, 31st in North America. So largely stemming from uh, coronavirus stuff. Kind of not unexpected we've seen this a few times but uh just kind of one of those you know second rung i i, I don't i say that kind of not as like a dig but just kind of one of those rpgs that's not really at the premiere at the top of everyone's list but it's coming out in july uh it's i do wonder like these koei tecmo their these their anime adaptations for rpgs tend to be i think better on average than like bandai namco's but maybe that's just a heuristic that's not always accurate we'll see does anyone here have any like connection to the fairy tale anime i certainly don't i, I that's do the, not that, that's the issue with these licensed games is like you know if you're a fan of the anime or the manga then you're probably interested in this game but that's the only group that would be interested it's really hard for a game like this to really branch out beyond that and be like hey this is actually legitimately good I mean, maybe it is, but it's really more of like a fan service game. The old definition of fan service, although I'm sure there's some common definition as well. It's just that it's for fans of that manga. So, and Who none of us are. To look at this. I think George is sort of a fan of the anime and might be interested in looking at this, but not sure. 
But yep, fairy tale RPG coming in late July. Maybe if we get Josh on, he'll know more about it, but I don't even know if he's even seen it. Yeah. Uh, we have news about Dark Souls series, which has been a while since we've heard about Dark Souls. We've heard about Shark Souls, but not this. But uh, they announced that Dark Souls 3 has surpassed 10 million total sales, and the franchise is at 27 million. That's so that's actually kind absolutely of... Absolutely insane. Yeah. Like, uh, to put in perspective, like, Final Fantasy VII, with not, not counting the remake, but, like, all the original versions combined, like, ports and whatnot, is something around, like, 13 million sold. And, like, it was just, like, a, a little while ago that it that it uh, was it was made public that Monster Hunter World was literally the best-selling non-Nintendo Japanese game of all time at, like, 15 million. Now it's at 16 million. 10 million copies sold for dark souls 3 means that it's almost inevitable over time because it's seems like the sales have been continuing continuing pretty steadily that um this is going to be the second highest selling japanese game outside of nintendo like of all time which is crazy especially considering that like now the two largest ips like from japan that aren't nintendo are monster hunter and dark souls like two of the most like hardcore like action RPGs in the industry. It's just crazy. Yeah, and I remember looking wonder... at some of the numbers uh, for this when before Dark Souls three released, um, like when it was announced, but before it, re- it was released, the series, which at that point was just one and two, of course, had sold like nine million, and then Dark Souls three released, and now we're up to twenty seven million total. So if you do the math, not only has Dark Souls 3 sold 10 million in that time, but that means like also in that time, the original two games have sold like eight or nine million additionally as well. Granted, they're going to be low, probably like sales. Uh, the numbers. remaster is in there too, I'm sure. Yeah, like, yeah, remaster and like sales uh, purchases that people are made, but still selling like an additional eight or nine million years after their original release like most games don't even get close to eight or nine million just to begin with that's it's that's nuts that it basically just exploded um it reminds me of the witcher talk from earlier just right elden ring is going to be huge like if dark souls 3 can sell 10 million imagine a follow-up with a larger scope and with the uh, Game of Thrones creators uh, backing, like with like narrative stuff, that's well. Maybe it's not as big now as if it had released before season eight, unfortunately. But uh, still, it's going to be absolutely massive, especially if it's got the um, power of like it originally showed up on a Microsoft stage. I'm, I assume that they're the market marketing pub, uh, partner. I don't know for certain, but if they've got that sort of like. I don't know. They've got that sort of stage to 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 re unveil themselves on. It, it could just be gigantic. It reminds me just kind uh, of very similar, like I said, to like Cyberpunk, following on the success that the Witcher series blew off their ceiling and now is in that you know rarefied era of selling dozens of millions of copies. And now Dark Souls is in the same place, which is kind of crazy to think like, about. And like we mentioned earlier, like Sekiro won Game of the Year at the Game Awards last year, so it's like. The pedigree is there. The sales numbers are there. It's just going to be fascinating. It's got that broad see. appeal where, like, even yeah. it can have that sort of footprint 
when I say it, I mean, even, I guess like from software's DNA of their titles, their, their catalog has that sort of clout even here. And even, and even like a slight consolation for people who are maybe upset at the ending of the Game of Thrones uh, HBO series. Like, hey, this is written by the person who did the first couple of seasons, not the last couple of seasons. He didn't write well, no. that. Well, so he also wrote the books, well, which is more important. <laughs> well, well, that's. I mean, like, I'm, 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 I'm working with the assumption here that more people have probably watched Game of Thrones than have read the books, and it seems like the common consensus is that the last couple of seasons were not great. But he didn't write those, so it's, I'm, I'm saying yeah. like, hey, if you liked early Game of Thrones, which is effectively the books, he basically wrote that. I know it's an adaptation, but yeah, all I'm getting at is he didn't write the crappy ending that people didn't like. He was not involved. I really the Dark Souls is one of those games where like I've already played all three of those and like loved them. I kind of want to go back to him, but I like I've already like I I'm more. Did you ever play, play Demon Souls? Ring. I did play Demon Souls. Yes, ah. uh, it was the like it was the first. It was the Demon Souls, I believe, that got me to sign up for PS Plus initially, when they had that as like a freebie in like I don't know 2014 or something like that. Like, all right, yeah. I gotta play, I gotta I gotta sub to this and play this. But yeah, Dark Souls three, 10 million. Dark Souls series, twenty seven million. I wonder what the current sales numbers for Bloodborne look like. Well, uh, I, people are <laughs> there. Are, what was that? What was that website that basically said Bloodborne was coming to PC? Just trust us. Like they had no sourcing. They had no. They had no anything to 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 substantiate that claim. But there are rumors that Bloodborne's coming to PC. But so far, they all yeah. I forget like the website, but game. it was literally like like some guy in a Discord chat was like, "Hey, I know that this is coming," and then I guess they're just they pub they published that I'm like. Oh. Now, I, I seeing that Horizon Zero Dawn, which is Sony developed, yeah. like there maybe there's a little bit of you know leeway there. And Bloodborne is not even Sony developed, but Sony published. So well, Japan like, Studio you know, helped with uh, development, like oh, they did with uh, Demon Souls. I didn't know that. <laughs> so there's like there's a chance, but nothing concrete yet. Yeah, yeah. are you telling? I think it's chance? the one like a ps4 exclusive that most people hope comes to pc because like it's it's funny because like ryzen zero dawn was obviously like 30 fps on ps4 but most people agreed and even like digital foundry agreed that the frame pacing was actually really good so even though it was 30 fps it felt perfectly fine to play but uh obviously the one major issue like maybe the one blemish on bloodborne as a whole is that the performance is it might not look so bad if you're looking at like a regular frame rate graph, but the frame pacing is just actually awful. And it never got a PS4 Pro patch. Like boost mode does help with the frame pacing a little bit, but still nowhere near where it should be. And of course you've had that like one person that just modded the game like on an old PS4 like just a few weeks ago showing that, yeah, the game can run at 60 FPS with some tweaks. So people are hungry to play Bloodborne at something besides 1080p, 30 FPS with god-awful frame pacing. People want to play people, it. People are hungry in general. Like, you, see, you see people like talking about Bloodborne, PS5, or uh, PC releases, and then Elden Ring. People want more of this. They want more from software. Uh, and as as evidenced by the sales in Dark Souls. 
and hopefully we won't yeah. be waiting too long. We'll see. We'll see what uh, when Elden Ring will resurface, and if any credence at all will come to those Bloodborne uh, rumors. And yep. finally, this isn't a news. This isn't really news, like in terms of new information, but it is kind of interesting, and I think a discussion point for a larger uh, disc- uh, topic. But Famitsu Magazine held a poll for the series' thirtieth uh, anniversary uh, on the most popular Fire Emblem games in Japan. So the top five were, counting from five to one, Mystery of the Emblem, the the Blazing Blade, which is uh, basically the GBA Fire Emblem that first released in the West, or it was the first Fire Emblem to release in the West, uh, Awakening as third, second is Three Houses, and first is Genealogy of the Holy War. So that's Fire Emblem 4 for the Super Famicom. So obviously, Fire Emblem, only about half maybe slightly more than half of its total series entries are available in English with a lot of the older series um, being locked to Japan and imports with fan translations where genealogy of the Holy war is kind of the, uh, the mountaintop, the, the, the one, I don't know what you want to call it, the white whale, the one that is so highly regarded and as evidenced by placing first in this fan poll that doesn't have an official English release but I think Adam and I have actually both played this with the fan translation. So do we agree with Genealogy of the Holy War being the best Fire Emblem game? I think out of all the Fire Emblems, it probably does have one of the strongest stories. Um, I, to be honest, I think most Fire Emblem games don't really have great narratives. They're, they're, I don't think they need to. I think as long as you just have some sort of general, basic, believable plot beneath the tactical gameplay, that's all you really need. But I do think Genealogy of the Holy War does have a really interesting story hook, and it does, uh, you know, have elements that no other game really does in terms of like crossing generations. In that sense, I do think there's been a lot of clamor for this game to be remade, sort of like Gaiden did with uh, Fire Emblem Echoes, and I do think this is the game, a game that would really benefit from one of those sorts of remakes because it has a lot of weird mechanical quirks and things where it just doesn't feel great to play um, that really actually kind of sour me on the game a bit. For example, one thing is, is that your characters cannot trade with each other and they each hold their own like purse, like wallet of money. And if you want to trade, I believe you have to like spend some of your money. I'm trying to recall exactly how it works to basically buy an item from another character. And it just becomes really tedious to work with. Like I remember when you're trying to like, when you're visiting like villages or houses on the map, you have to be careful like who visits the house because they might pick up some money and you have to be careful like who gets the money. Yeah. So you gotta, so it's not just whoever can get over there faster or most safely go to the house. It's who like needs the money most to get over there or who needs, you know, and it just, it, it ends up being really tedious that you cannot trade at all. Just, well, you can trade just with this weird money system that it has. And I remember I played Thracia 766 or 776, whichever one it is, like right after uh, Genealogy. And in that game, you can trade right away. And I was just like, thank God. It's so, this is so convenient. And there's no reason. And we both had the luxury of 
we both had the luxury of playing this on an emulator where you can do like save states and fast forward as much as you might say that's against the uh, DNA of the game. But that's the sort of stuff that we've been seeing introduced into the series as like quality of life additions anyway. And that's where I think a remake of Genealogy would benefit the most because one of the hallmarks of this game is that it has really big maps, like literally like stated that plainly. It has big chapters where you 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 move your, you know, your party across the map to a keep to fight a boss in like a certain story. And then once you capture that keep, it's almost like you unfold another subchapter within the same map where a new a new threat is made uh you know prevalent and then you got to head to a different part of the map to to take on a new threat or, or a continuing threat so it's basically like each map is subdivided into two or three sub components and that's kind of a spectacle when you have like this giant line of like wyverns coming your way or whatever but it's also cumbersome to play through where you have like your your characters you one at a time shuffle them forward there are three four five six spaces or however far they go across this giant field where it's just the the spectacle is great but i just think actually turning the cogs is not so fun but these are the sorts of things that i think a remake could really adjust they could do like the phase skip where you just press start and all the enemies end up in their final position the fast forward uh I forget if the original game allowed you to cut out battle animations, like this is the side-by-side view, but there's certain ways that I think a remake could really benefit this game without compromising the things that it already does so well, like the story. And I think two of the most popular series in the West, uh, entries in the West, Awakening, obviously borrows from the um, Generations idea. It, put, it, it establishes it a little bit more straightforward, I believe. Now, here's the thing. I think, Adam, you're the only one that's played I've played Genealogy, James has played a bit of Awakening, you've played both. Awakening's generation system is way more straightforward than Genealogy's, which is a bit of a kind of a a cryptic sort of thing that you, you kind of have to really look up and well, genealogy study how they doesn't, all Genealogy doesn't actually have like support conversations. It's actually much more basic. Like if you have a male and a female character just standing next to each other, um, like long enough eventually if you like go to like some menu like you'll notice that it says they're married and there's no there's not necessarily like a scene or dialogue between characters or anything it's just one second they're not married and the next second they are um there are a few conversations you can have between characters like certain pairs that are that are kind of like support conversations, but they're basically bespoke conversations that occur at certain spots between certain characters that you can do, but they're not like signposted at all. You kind of just either have to stumble across them or know about them ahead of time. So that is something a remake could also do is like more directly list out who can marry who and have some sort of support system, you know, make it a little bit more like awakening. And that's, that's what I meant by it's like a bit more cryptic and not straightforward and something you really got to study and play through multiple times in order to understand, Hey, if I pair this person with this other person, then their, 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 uh, kid that they get, that I get in the second part of the game will have the act. Cause there's, this, it has kind of the, um, the other game that I was going to mention that borrows a lot of DNA from genealogy is obviously three houses, which plays second here, which I think most of us have a pretty high opinion on, which has a system with crests, which, is kind of like the bloodline system of genealogy. I think it's pared down a little bit in terms of how it's implemented into the game, but I think it's kind of for the better. It's it's more clean and obvious exactly what the crests do. You can, uh, you know, but 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 then it doesn't pair with any sort of offspring system. You just have what you have. 
So that's where genealogy kind of really has a whole bunch of interlocking cogs, which kind of make that second half of that game play out very differently, depending on how you, who you pair up and how you, how you, like who even survives the first half of the game. Um, but I just do think it could be made cleaner. It could, the systems could be kind of polished out to be more straightforward. It could be it could be done in a way where it's a little bit easier to kind of land where you want to land in the second part, rather than just kind of rolling with the punches based on circumstance and who you happen to have standing by each other. Now this is this definitely is a bit to... of a tangent, but it feels fascinating how even nowadays we have like so many of these RPG series where people talk about these games or Japanese only that maybe receive fan translations. And even though they've never been officially localized, like there's a consensus that they are, if not maybe the best in the series, but they're in the upper echelon. Like uh, you see it with the trail series where like the crossbow duology, like many people that have played the entire trail series, like consider that to be the apex of like the storytelling and whatnot. And like the, most co- like most well known one, of course, would be like Mother Three, where it's never been localized. It's never been trans. Well, there's the fan translation, and it seems like people just accept that it's the best in the series. And it's a similar thing with Fire Emblem Genealogy of the Holy War. It's just kind of fascinating, like that. Obviously, the uh, industry has gotten much better about translating and bringing these games over from uh from um, from japan but even now there is like for some series there's these games that everyone knows is fantastic but just they aren't necessarily available for people if they want to support them in an official capacity yeah i do think the cynic in me does say that some non-negligible non-negligible percentage of that is just kind of the mystique uh effect where in order to have played this in English in the first place, you had to import it and then, or you didn't have to import it, I guess, technically you could just play it on an emulator with a hack. Uh, there, there's sort of that like hurdle that you have to go through where anyone who has played this is already invested in the series or went out of their way to make that available to them. Like if Genealogy of the Holy War had released in English in the 90s and sold, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand copies, would it be so highly lauded as one that hey, people had to go out of their way to play in English and had to go seek out? I do think that there is a percentage of kind of that white whale effect where it's like you want what you can't have, and but you can't have it if you go out of your way to get it sort of thing. I, I get what you're then, saying. What what, what yeah, it reminds me of people, Well, what it reminds me of is how back Final Fantasy Type-0 when that released on PSP and wasn't available in English, I saw plenty of Final Fantasy fans saying how great a game it was that we everyone else was missing out on. And of course, these were fans who went out of their way to buy the Japanese version and play it. And then when that game eventually did release, it's just it's Final Fantasy Type Zero is terrible, guys. It's just awful. Yeah, that's just my opinion. Now, I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say like James is wrong that the Crossbell duology is actually maybe not as good as people say it is. But I get what you're saying, Brian, where it's just like when you have a fandom in the West that goes out of their way to play the Japanese version, like in that hasn't been available to the, made available to them officially. They're sort of already fans, if you will. <laughs> so it's yeah. maybe like you, you, that cynic in you is kind of like, is this actually good? Or is it just because they're a fan? Though <laughs> I am now, curious 
about like Mother 3 because like even though that's never been officially released, the fan translation's been around for so long and even more so than that, there's been reproduction carts for the like even the play on like a Game Boy Advance for like forever. So I feel like if people wanted to play Mother 3, it's not it's not even ironically enough for the longest time it was easier to find a copy of mother three with a fan translation and a reproduction cart than it was to play earthbound so i wonder if well obviously i I do agree that there is that bias there and i am curious even though the zero the trails from zero fan translation came out and that and it's relatively easy to play that game in english on pc if you care to do so it's still not an official release and there is that stigma there I do wonder if for Trails from Zero and Mother 3 and to a lesser extent um, Genealogy of the Holy War, just how much the perspective on those games would change from a wider, more official release. Because specifically for Mother 3, I don't think... I think it's been it's been in the public consciousness so long, and I feel like there's actually a significant portion of the people that have played it that maybe never played Earthbound. They actually only played Mother 3. But I do wonder if the uh, perspective about that game would change by all that much if it did ever see an official release. This also kind of has me thinking about like what other what other games are relatively popular because of a fan translation and one of them was only available for a fan tra- with a fan translation up until recently was Psychon and Setsu 3. It kind of fits in that mold, uh, highly regarded older classic RPG that was only available with a fan translation. But unlike Type-0, it releases recently. and people like it. Though I, I, I never get this, I never got it to like drop the other shoe, but like I was one of those people who went out of my way. I don't import a lot of games, but I went out of my way to import genealogy because it had such good word of mouth. This was like 2013 or so. Um, and I did like it. I, I did mention my few caveats with it, but I do love the storytelling. I think I had some wonderful characters. I really love how the bloodline system and the generation system all tie in together, though you did have to remind me about how like simple it was in terms of there's no there's no support conversations between them. It just happens in a menu. But so like I kind of poisoned my own well. I just talked about how people who went out of this game to purchase it already or to play it already are biased. And I'm one of those people and I played it and I like it. So please trust me. But I mean but it's also is it's good. also worth mentioning that like uh, Saga Scarlet Grace came out in Japan basically three years to the date before it came out in the West. And like, I mean, I imported it, played a bit of it on Vita and like everyone that um, played it on Vita said that it was such a great game. And then we ended up giving it our RPG of the year last year. So it's, it's clear that like bias is a thing of course, but I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that every like Japan only game that people that have played it um, have high acclaim for necessarily is just being like rose tinted glasses or something like that. Yeah, I'm just yeah, I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying remember who's sharing this. Who is telling you the Fire Emblem Genealogy of the Holy War is a great game? It's people who are already in love with the series and went out of their way to get it. Um yeah. but believe me, it's a great game. It's if I were to list I, my favorite I, Fire Emblem games, well before I get into my list, let me talk about the rest of this list here. I was surprised so Three Houses is second. You might say that there's some recency bias there. Um I guess we'll see if that falls at all in like coming years, I don't think it will. Cause I think it is really well made. And obviously we gave it a nine. Uh, 
but obviously whenever we have like we saw in like final fantasy series rankings how far up the list 15 was in like 2016 17 18 how it's kind of fallen there's always kind of that bump you get from being recent and then uh awakening being third i think kind of shows its staying power in terms of being like that shot in the arm the series needed i actually have as someone who didn't really like awakening too much i have no qualm with it being there with a lot of with all of the different ways that it kind of modernized the series but this is the one that i am surprised by Fire Emblem 4, or not Fire Emblem 4, the fourth one here, Fire Emblem 7, quote-unquote, the Blazing Blade, or Blazing Sword. Um, this is the GBA game with Ellie Woodland and Hector. I could understand why a U.S. ranking might place this high. Nostalgia, first one, you know, your, you know, your gateway into the series. But I'm actually surprised that this outpaced some of the other entries on GBA from a Japanese perspective, because they have no reason to weigh this one more heavily. Uh... I like this game. I'm just surprised to see it so high up. Yeah, obviously this was the very first game released in the West, and so a lot of people are fans of it who are because it was the very first introduction to the series here. Kind of like Awakening, only for the kind of the generation before that that got into it. But even if it wasn't this quite is as a big Japanese splash. pull, though, so right, right, exactly that's why he's surprised that it ranked here. It's almost like it's almost confirmation in a way. Like, hey, I guess Japanese people like this game as much as, you know, to at least a good extent that similar to what Western people who have played this like it. Um, it's a really good game. It's almost GBA. it's almost the other way of what we've been talking about. Where this is a game where people in English have a lot of like circumstantial reasons to really like this game, but then you learn that there is something more inherent to the game itself outside of just circumstances of the release that say like yeah it's got some really cool stuff that it does with the uh the two the two options that protagonists uh hector and ellie wood it's the first one i believe that introduces any sort of player avatar in the tactician which obviously has kind of grown and shifted into lots of different permutations since then so this might not have been as groundbreaking in terms of awakening or genealogy but it, it is kind of that i guess that's why it's up here it's not just iterative it does add to the formula now this isn't a direct comparison but what i'm thinking about when we're having this conversation about how perspectives on games can be warped based off of their circumstances like if it's a game that's only in japanese the people that on the western side of things that have actually played it are more likely to be fans well i think i briefly kind of touched upon this when i was talking about my impressions with uh shadowbringers last week where it's like I wasn't sure if I was going to enjoy it as much as people were making it out um, with how good people were making it out to be because I kind of understood that if somebody had played through Final Fantasy XIV enough to reach Shadowbringers, chances are they already really enjoyed the game and they had reasons to, from the get-go to enjoy Shadowbringers. And it... Well, obviously, my impressions last week were, well, I completely agree with the uh, consensus, but also, well, I binged the hell out of Final Fantasy fourteen in two months. So maybe yeah, I, I was the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone who's decided for themselves that they just don't gel with the product that Final Fantasy fourteen is, whether it's the gameplay or a specific system or how it tells its story, not as much the story itself, because that changes. Um but anyone who's already at Shadowbringers has already decided that the game is for them, I guess, in, in some way, in yeah. some inherent way. 
So again, I'm not saying that that makes every impression from that game forfeit, just as I'm not saying that any impression that's positive on genealogy or any other imported game is worthless. It's just something to keep in mind, I guess is all I'm saying, is who is who is relaying that information. So that's one reason why I think uh, a remaking for genealogy would really see like how strongly would that splash uh, in terms of fresh perspective. Everyone who's joined on since either Awakening or the generation before, like Adam said, uh, Blazing Blade. Uh, I, let's see. So I guess it's how it is. Is uh, this is just, this is very technical, but I had always grown up calling them Blazing Sword and Sword of Seals, but those were just kind of fan translations for six and seven. But I guess with houses, not houses, um, Fire Emblem Heroes, they've gone with the Blazing Blade and the Binding Blade. So very, very obviously parallel naming scheme for those two games. Yeah, and I, I think Genealogy the Holy War was not an official name. It was just kind of the commonly used English name for that game. But then eventually in, you know, official English media, they just kind of went with Heroes, it, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah, so, yeah. It's actually it's interesting because uh, reading Steiner or Andrew uh, Hodgkin, uh, he's he's a translator and I'm friends with him on Twitter. Uh, so just there. But actually earlier today, he had a bit of a conversation, a tweet chain about how fan translated names for media actually impacts the way that uh, official translated names are decided upon. Because if there's already been a consensus like in the search algorithm and whatnot for a specific title. It's more likely that the official title will base itself off of the fan accepted title or fan accepted translation. So it's kind of interesting that personally, just like listening, like genealogy of the Holy War sounds like a perfectly fine translation to me. It sounds like it would fit like the kind of tone that the uh, series goes for, but it's kind of interesting how that works out. There is actually another person I follow, Nick Rocks, who is a longtime translator. And he used to do like reporting on Japanese games way back in the day. And I guess one of the games they reported, he reported on in some magazine was uh, Castlevania Symphony of the Night. The Japanese title for that game, I guess, is more close to like Moonlight Nocturne or something like that is what it's like, what a more direct translation is. But he actually admitted like he sort of mistranslated it as symphony of the night when he was like reporting on it in this magazine and basically from there that just caught on and now it's like the official name of the game just kind of reminded me what you were saying that's <laughs> like a cool it just story. stuck like it like it just kind of predisposes them to say like here is what the conversation about this game has centered around already you're free to change it but someone has already kind of put a stake in the ground and if you change it, you're you're moving away from that rather than having a complete open canvas to to go directly from the, the Japanese title. I do wonder if uh, when, and I do think it's an inevitability that the um, Crossbow duology will eventually get translated now, like officially. I do wonder if they're going to take from the uh, fandom decided names because it's an interesting situation where when the series was with Exceed, they had names that they had decided what they would call the Crossbow Duology, even if they never translated them. But now the fandom has come up with specific names that they want to go for, Trails from Zero and Trails to Azure. I do wonder that if the uh, official localization for those will go based off of the Exceed decided titles or the fandom decided titles, because they are different. 
Do you know offhand what the Xseed ones? Uh, hmm? Do you know offhand what the Xseed ones were or are? Uh, I think it was Trails um, Trails uh, 2-0 instead of Trails from 0. And I actually, personally, playing um, both uh, the Crossbow Duology, I agree with the fan-translated titles because I feel like conceptually, based off of what the story of the Crossbow Duology is, having the From and the 2 for uh, 0 and Azure actually makes a lot of sense. And it fits in with the storyline of the two games. And I think that that would be the right way to go. I actually do kind of like that too. It really makes it clear the progression one to two. Yeah. I guess one well, final comment I have on this uh, Fire Emblem list to try to rein this back in is that obviously one omission here that certain people in the West probably notice is that it does not have either Telius games on it. It does not have Path of Radiance, which I think is really great. And it does not have Radiant Dawn, which I think is not so got, not so good. Um, I don't know if that's the fact that those were kind of locked to... Well, I guess Radiant Dawn was on Wii, but Path of Radiance was on GameCube, which kind of had a limited footprint. Uh, I don't know if those stories are just more Western-oriented in terms of their sensibilities. Um, I actually I do think, think Path it's... of Radiance is a really... Sorry, uh, let me just finish my thought here. Yeah, I sorry. think Path of Radiance is a really good game. Uh just in the fact of how how clean it is, how like pure it is. It doesn't have any systems in it that I think are kind of superfluous and unneeded. I really like like the base info system where it gives the characters one thing that I thought the Fire Emblem series was weak weak about up until Path of Radiance was outside of your lords and like their immediate circle of like advisors, friends, colleagues, or whatever. You had this huge cast of characters which would hardly ever speak. You would recruit them. And then they would just be on your roster. That's all they were. They were an artwork in a class. And then Path of Radiance, I felt, was the first game that really said, you've got a roster of, in Path of Radiance case, it was like 30 characters. In Radiant Dawn, it's like 50 or something crazy like that. Um, where not only do we have support conversations, but we have these info conversations. They speak at the base. We, we involve more of them in the story. And I think the story is well told up until Radiant Dawn. And then I think Radiant Dawn kind of loses the, the plot a bit. So that's, that was yeah. my take with why Path of Radiance is good, but I guess it's just not popular amongst uh, Japanese fans. It's just how it is. Yeah. I do remember that uh, when Fire Emblem Awakening was first coming out, that um, it was kind of said that if it didn't do well, it would be the last Fire Emblem game. So maybe that has to do with it, that maybe like when those games came out, they just were, at least in Japan, they were in a bit of a lull, and maybe they weren't just maybe not as many people played them. Were you going to say something, Adam? I think Path of Radiance was also the first game that had like, well, maybe it's not fair to the, uh, to the uh, GBA games, but you were talking about how it has like multiple characters participating in the storyline. And I think it does a really good job at like incorporating the world building into that too, where you have, not every character that's important in that story like joins your party, if you will. Like you have like the Hawk Nation and things like that, and, and eventually I think you can get Tabarn on your team. But I think it does a really good job just having like this larger cast of characters that plays roles in this world, rather than characters are having... allowed to be important without being on your roster. Right, exactly. And Radiant Dawn, I give them, I give Radiant Dawn and Intelligent Systems there some props for like. It was incredibly ambitious to have like 
taking that idea to the extreme, like having multiple parties, like the Dawn Brigade is over here doing this thing, but then you have Ike's team over here doing this other thing. And like, they're all part of the same world and they're, they're not necessarily working to the same goal at the same time. And I think that's a good idea, like on paper, but just the way that it was implemented in the game is kind of tedious. And so it, I think it kind of just bit off more than they could chew at that point. But neither one of those is on this list here. So just how it is. I do wonder like what six through 10 would be, but I went to the original, the, 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 um, the source article of Himitsu and it doesn't seem like they, they stated it. I do wonder what we'll see next uh, from intelligence systems in terms of Fire Emblem, because like Three Houses was all, in a lot of ways a Koei Tecmo product. And then we know intelligence systems is working on Paper Mario again. So it'll be interesting to see, like, is a Fire Emblem Echoes genealogy of the Holy War? What's next? I guess we can hope. Advanced and when wars. we shared this, <laughs> yes, when we shared this on, on Twitter, like this kind of goes with how much of that... Uh, how how popular at least the idea of genealogy of the holy war has become we we shared this poll on twitter which we're just reporting on what the poll was done in famitsu and it got like thousands of shares basically people saying like yeah they're right genealogy is that good so it'd be i would if we're sitting here in 2023 talking about a remake of this game and how it compares and i just think that would be that's i'm getting, I'm getting kind of ahead of myself that would be wonderful to think about but it's all just speculation at this point we'll see And that is really it for this week. So it's a bit light, but we got a, a cool talk about Fire Emblem. We had a cool talk about uh, Japanese publishers and this uh, New Game Plus Expo that'll be in just a month. We've got Xenoblade next week and lots to look forward to. And every single week we'll have probably some surprise announcements to talk about from this point forward. I don't know if you had any other final closing thoughts, either of you guys. Uh no, I have a good, yeah, have a good, yeah, have a, yeah, be safe, have a good Memorial Day weekend. We'll talk to you about RPGs next week, as we seemingly always do. You can always find us on our website at rpgsite.net. You can find us on Twitter at rpgsite. I don't think we've had any uploads recently, but you can find us on YouTube at rpgsite.net. You can find our Discord channel. I thought we had a link to our home on, on our homepage, but I guess we actually don't. So maybe we'll share that out on our Twitter, uh, just to get more people into our Discord to talk about RPGs. If you want, you can follow me on Twitter at Zeomassicot, Z-E-O-M-A-S-S-I-C-O-T. I've mostly just been sharing screenshots of Kwame. Uh, Adam, where can they find you? I'm at K-I-N-G underscore S-E-D-A. And James. You can find me at T-H-E-S-W-W-E-E-T. Uh, didn't talk about it on this podcast, but I've been reading through Higurashi When They Cry recently. Uh, so that's fun. Um, yeah. Follow James for any of your uh, Vita or visual novel adjacent news. And Vita we'll be life. back next week. Yes, Vita. We talked about Vita this podcast. We talked about Saga Scarlet Grace. We mentioned Monster Hunter in passing. We hit all the bases. <laughs> so uh, we'll see you next week where we might have some very, very initial impressions about the launch of Xenoblade DE, maybe Fantasy Star, and who knows what else. And we'll talk to you then. Take care.